Hi, I'm Katie Allen. I'm a paediatrician turned politician, and I'm constantly asked why change from one of the world's most trusted professions to one of the least? The answer is simple. I want to get inside the tent to help make our future better. Along the way, I've met fascinating people and learned a lot about how the world works. I want to share some of that experience with you, and through my podcast, you'll meet some really interesting people who are helping solve the problems of the world. Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple A Week. Hopefully, you'll learn as much as I do. So, Emma, welcome to my podcast. So great to have you with me. And um, I thought I'd kick off by asking, why did you choose to do medicine? Um, I think the original reason I decided to do medicine was when I was seven, I wanted to work in the Antarctic. And the only women that were allowed to work in the Antarctic were doctors. And so I announced that I was going to become a doctor so I could work in the Antarctic. And then as I got it a bit older, I realised how much I love sciences, how much I like people. And I didn't want to be just a scientist. So when it came to doing A-levels, um, I really honed in on the science side and decided that being a doctor was where I really wanted to be. So what started off as a, I want to go to the Antarctic ended up as um, I wanted to become a doctor. And I was lucky enough to be able to get the right grades and to go to medical school. Um, um, and no, I never did go to the Antarctic. <laughs> well, maybe next time you yeah. come down to Australia, we can get you down there. But uh, actually knowing how gregarious you are and how much you love working with patients, I can't even imagine you being stuck in the Antarctic. But anyway, you would have been a very good Antarctic doctor, I'm sure. Lucky for us, you are not. <laughs> so um, I, I want to talk about how medicine has changed for you, I mean, both of us are doctors and, mm. and I know it's changed because there's more digitalization and the way healthcare is provided has changed quite dramatically. But for you in the NHS system, how has healthcare and, and the way it's provided changed and how's it been for you in the healthcare system? Yeah. I think in some ways medicine on the ground level hasn't changed at all since I became a doctor um, in terms of trying to provide good quality healthcare to people, enjoying what you're doing, listening and taking good history and examining people. So the actual ground level roots bit of it hasn't changed at all over that time. The practicalities have changed a huge amount since I first qualified as a doctor, which was over 30 years ago. Um, I think um, we've gone from a very sort of quite patriarchal system to I would say a bit more of an egalitarian system. We've also seen huge changes in the political systems and also in what healthcare can provide. And with that have come the challenges of can you provide it? What's the accessibility into healthcare? Um, how much does it cost? Are the things I've started to see over the last 15, 20 years has been um, capping of healthcare provision. And that comes down to when I first qualified, if you had a heart attack, you came into hospital, you were in for a certain amount of time, given certain medications and went home. Now we're much more intervention. When you go into hospital, if you have a heart attack, you will have an angiogram done within 30 minutes to an hour of getting in, ideally, but certainly ideally during your stay. And um, you might have a stent before you leave hospital rather than just medical management. So we're seeing huge amounts of more interventional medicine. And that has an impact financially and also on the time that somebody spends in hospital and the expectations of people and improves healthcare outcomes from it. Mixed in with that, we've gone from a purely paper system over to a digital system. Do you find that um, the difference between hospital-based doctors and GPs, there's, there's, some, there's some tensions in that. So there may be less patients in hospitals, but that presumably means that patients might be in GP practices more and that's putting more pressure in the primary healthcare provision. So I think two points about 
US, which is throughout the um, UK, well, through England and um, uh, Wales, the Scottish system is slightly different to ours. They run very separately. But within England and Wales, we have our CTGs, ACS, uh, and they are localised healthcare. So, for example, I work in Somerset, and Somerset sets is given some money that is devolved from the NHS to Somerset, and Somerset has to provide um, all the services within Somerset. So they can choose what they provide and what they don't provide. Uh, and that may be different to what's done in Devon. So I live in Devon, I work in Somerset. So what I can have as a, a patient in Devon, I may not be able to get as a patient in the community in which I serve. Um, so, so it's like decentralised uh, management of how yes. services are provided. Yeah. Which there is a lot, there are a lot of benefits to that. Uh, one of the things we've always said is most healthcare professionals is that a lot of things in uh, in the NHS is done by London for London. So when you see a lot of healthcare changes that come in, London is a very specific city that has its own um, problems that run within it. You've got a lot of big hospitals in a small area. Um, and so a lot of the changes that came, an example would be, um, that any patient can go to any hospital they want to go to. That sounds great, but if you um, are one of my patients in your local hospital is Taunton, you could go to Manchester to have your surgery done. But at the end of the day, if your hip replacement is done there and you have a complication, where do you go back to? You can't necessarily get in the car to go all the way back up to Manchester. So I think that you do need to have a local pot of money that can provide the services within the area in which they're being provided because those healthcare providers know what needs to be done in that area which may be different to the next area along next county along mm. and the other second point was um it partly picks up with what we talked about before is the example you gave of people spending a lot less time in hospital if you go and have your hip replacement done now you're normally in hospital probably about three to four days when I first qualified you in maybe for a month by the time you came out you'd done a lot of your rehabilitation now the hospital is paid to provide that service but there are a lot of things that are being shifted out of hospital who looks after that person when they get home when they have a, a wound infection when they need to have rehabilitation if the hospital doesn't do the discharge properly suddenly as a doctor a GP on call you've been asked to make sure that you've been asked to arrange for physiotherapy for um, um, mobility aids for that person because it hasn't necessarily been done by the hospital. In all fairness, the hospitals are normally quite good at it. There's a massive knock-on effect of that post-operative care coming out of hospitals into general practice, four days in hospital and then out to general practice trying to manage someone at home. When as GPs, you're also doing that for the cardiologists, for the orthopaedic surgeons, for the respiratory surgeons. Everybody thinks the GP can just do this, the GP can just do that. And actually, I think in general practice we're a sponge that's soaked now and there is nothing more to give and we're also still trying to provide day-to-day -day care of people who are unwell or people that are becoming unwell or that need to see a doctor whether that's mental health problems whether that's a tonsillitis whether it's somebody who's now developing hip problems that's going to go on to need a hip replacement so I think that we are really being stretched very, very thinly in general practice because of so much work being pushed out into general practice and that's a good thing in terms of people spending less time in hospital but it's where that funding comes from um I know funding I know if you have a hip replacement money-wise that costs a lot more than seeing somebody in general practice but I, I can't remember the figures but general practice has a tiny proportion of the entire funding into the NHS and yet if you look we provide I think it's something like 80 to 90 percent of all those appointments mm, mm. um so it's an activity so that you're an, actually yeah so, so we, and, and when you know diabetes when I first was a GP um most diabetes would be managed partly in hospital partly in general practice 
now pretty much all diabetes is managed in general practice from diagnosis all the way through unless someone has a lot of complications type 1 diabetes might be managed in primary care and secondary care but most of it is done by us so we've had to change the way that we practice so our nurses now uh, is to become a practice nurse they are highly skilled chronic disease management specialists um people that you don't need to be a doctor to do that. So if you if you have diabetes, in my practice, our nurses are so highly skilled. They're the people that will manage your diabetes unless there are extra problems, in which case you'll come to see a GP. But that also means that the healthcare provision by general practitioners has to has had to evolve. That we have paramedics, we have advanced nurse practitioners, we have nursing teams that are very good at chronic disease management, trying to now have general practitioners dealing with the complex patients uh, as we're seeing an elderly population. Mm. So the Australian system is uh, an activity-based system. So doctors are basically, you know, funded based on um, whether it's a new or new patient, or I should say GPs, while, you know, it's a per capitation model here in mm. the NHS. So in some ways, you know, the ability to look in a more you know, holistic approach is there for GPs if they're properly remunerated for all this complexity that they're now inheriting from the hospital system as the decentralisation occurs. You know, to add to that mix, there's also the political will of making sure that patients, you know, feel satisfied with what they get. And I know there's been a recent announcement here in the UK about appointments um, for, for to be able to see your doctor within a two-week period. You know, it's just a recent announcement. What impact will that have on your care for patients and what do you think is it a good idea or not so good I think it is a good idea when you are unwell when you're worried about something uh, I think you want to see be able to have access into healthcare. if you're a busy working person actually if you have a day off you suddenly think I do want to go and see someone about that and you might want to make an appointment I always counter that with um when I have a problem with um, a, a tap that's broken, my central heating that's broken, if I'm even when it's been in the middle of winter, if a plumber says I can't get you for two weeks, I just go okay and I sit there freezing. Whereas if somebody's had a problem they may have had for six months, it doesn't mean they don't need to be seen. They do, but people once they decide they want to see a doctor, they want to see them now. Going back to what you were saying about the funding, um, I. The, each patient within the UK, I think it's something like as a GP, we do get per capita. So as a patient, you can see, come and see me 20 times in a year or you cannot see me for three years. But essentially, I, I think it's something along the lines we get about two pounds per patient per year. Um, um, and so um, and then we get an extra bit of funding. But essentially, it allows for one patient to be seen once per year. And not but you might have somebody coming in 20 times a year so we just don't have the funding to be able to provide the number of appointments that we'd ideally like to have mixed in with that I was talking to you earlier about the fact that since COVID um, GPs now seem uh, are providing 25% more appointments than we were three years ago and yet the waiting times to see us has actually gone up so the average time is about three weeks at the moment so yes I agree we should definitely be trying to get the waiting times down to see us because I think that's good practice but equally what you want is a really good quality appointment so rather than just a short appointment you need to be able to come in and as I said to you earlier a lot of people have far more complex problems it's not just an asthma problem or it's not just a hip problem it can be the fact they might need a hip replacement but they've got cardiac problems so I need to get those sorted out mm. In yeah. Australia, if um, you know that we know the emergency department waiting lists are where the waiting lists are, so yeah. people go to the emergency and then they can't get to see someone in the emergency. They might wait twelve or twenty-four hours sometimes, so they go to their GP. So um, if someone has an acute problem 
in the UK? Would they go to their hospital or their GP? I think it depends on what the problem is. So um, the hospital is accident and emergency is what it's come from. So to me, I think if you've had an accident or it's an emergency, that's where you should be going. And that anything else that is an urgency, which in fact, a lot of healthcare is urgent or, or chronic as opposed to emergency. And we do try to provide the urgent care within general practice. And I think that in England is where, it, where you should be going to. Um, I know in, my, in every practice I've worked in, including the one I'm in at the moment, we run an urgent care team. So every day we have uh, a doctor on the morning, a doctor on the afternoon. We've also got uh, two paramedics on in the morning and the afternoon, and we have um, nurse practitioners. So our urgent care team is normally uh, between four people in um, five people in the morning and three and four people in the afternoon and that's as in parallel with our uh, normal GP so when clinics. we talk about two weeks that's yeah. just I mean if someone needs to be seen they are seen yes but what we're seeing is is that because people have this perception which I think some it is genuine but also the fear of not being seen is being fed by the press I mm. think mm. Um, and also um, we're all told if there's a problem, you need to be seen straight away because it might be a cancer, it might be something else, which of course it could be. But we've also got to put things into perspective. What you need is a quality appointment to be looked after properly. So what we're finding is, is that our urgent care team are being overwhelmed by chronic problems, people who have got a lot of pain in their hip um, who want a change in their medication, but they don't want to wait three weeks to have that change in their medication, they want it today because it hurts so much, you know, and we all understand that. So that, and, and there might be somebody else who's got a mental health care problem. We're seeing a lot of that more so after COVID. Um, and um, so we're seeing rising levels of mental health problems. Um, and there's a lot of access into it that, and help people can get. It doesn't have to come from a GP. It doesn't have to be medicine-based, but people's um, first point of call is always into general practice. So what we see is our urgent care teams overwhelmed with, urgent problems like a tonsillitis, a chest infection, somebody's really poorly. Um, and we also have things which as a GP, I would rather see in a cool, calm surgery, even if that takes two or three weeks to see me, because I think I can give you a better service if you do that. So I think we've got this real mixture of what we've got going on. And I like to think we don't turn anybody away, um, but sometimes people get fed up with the fact they're told that they need to book an appointment and the earliest appointment is three weeks time or four weeks time sometimes and they decided no today's the day I want to have it done today mm -hmm. yeah is there a lot of burnout yes particularly after COVID huge and the backlog amount. of cases and the backlog of appointment yeah. waiting times and a huge amount of burnout and I think when we go back to what demoralizes us as GPs it's not about blaming our colleagues in the hospital we are one we work together but sometimes this is all that happens when anyone's back is against the wall the hospitals are really frustrated as a consultant in the hospital you don't want your patients waiting 14 week months to see you you want to actually be seeing somebody and getting on with treating them um, so their defense mechanism is just they go back to general practice general practice is then taking up is being the sum for all of that and then we've been told when we read in the media it's all general practice's fault rather than inherent healthcare system problem so in terms of trying to how do we tackle this um it's, it's, we can always say, yes, we've thrown more doctors and we've thrown more staff at it. But actually what we need to do, and we did when Tony Blair was in, one of the things he and his government did was they put what was called a waiting list initiative in. Um, as doctors, some you can't just work longer hours all of the time, but sometimes when they put the waiting list initiative in, so people took a week's annual 
leave, what they would do is they'd go in and do some waiting list initiatives to try and get the waiting list down. Because, of course, once the waiting list has got down, you can start to tip things along again. It so becomes a steady state. Doctors on annual leave would do waiting lists. They work. would at that point because it's very much targeted to, we were very, very behind on appointments, not like we are now. COVID, in all fairness, nobody could, if you're an ENT surgeon, people in an hour when you had to put on full pp you could only see one person so right. you were your your clinic was slowed down massively mm. so their backlog is purely code based right um but what i was saying was that when we had got very behind before when you pump prime it to actually say right let's get the waiting list down let's help the hospitals to get their waiting list down that has a knock-on effect in general practice that we then can free up some of our appointments because we're not seeing all those people that are waiting to be seen in hospital uh, and also it then means that I'm not having to refer someone now with a problem thinking I know they are going to need surgery but it's they don't quite need it now so I'll refer them now and we can always take them off the list if we need mm, to. Mm. So I think I think it's it's not there's not an easy answer, but I think that we have seen before that if you really work hard with our hospital colleagues, rather than just saying we need more doctors, we need more doctors, we need more nurses, we need more nurses, what we need to be doing is to say, how can we work smarter? How can we work cohesively? If you've got doctors that are constantly burning out because they're waiting list to see their patient in outpatients is 14 months, or as a GP, all you can see is that everyone's saying they can't see you, actually. That fatigues you. Whereas if you know that if you say, right, I, one Saturday a month, I will go in and do a waiting list initiative in a hospital in order to be able to really get that waiting list down. We were talking about, mm. you know, the pressures on the waiting list. So mm. following on from the doctors to work harder or longer, mm. another way is to increase the workforce provision of doctors. Yeah. Um, and we know that the way that doctors are practising medicine is changing. Junior doctors are more likely to take part-time work while they're doing their exams or raising a family and dying, you know, other end are also more likely to step down to part time. So even though I think people expected there'd be and less doctors and less patients in hospital or shorter stay for patients, it seems to me that long-term workforce planning around the developed world mm. probably hasn't been as active as it should be or hasn't anticipated the requirement for healthcare workers in the way it should have. And that's now being compounded by the fact that with COVID, um, important doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers are not coming into countries like the UK and Australia because of lockdown. So did you want to make a comment about, um, you know, doctor and nurse and allied health worker yeah. shortage? And is, are there enough being trained in the short, medium and long term for the system? I think we need to be trained more healthcare professionals, not just doctors, but nurses, physiotherapists, and we also have um, physician assistants. Um, it's not, I think some of it is that if you, again, if you look back 30 years ago, traditionally, it was a much more male-dominated profession. We now have women and men. And also, as women in medicine or men in medicine, our partner is often a full-time worker as well. So when people are having families, you, um, you have a lot of people who work two half-time jobs to to be able to provide for their family. So I think that that also comes in. So we need to be looking at what level, numbers of doctors we need and nurses and physios we need to train in order to allow for that. Um, I think we're blaming COVID a lot on um, healthcare vision doctors retiring in the UK. We also must mention the elephant in the room, which is Brexit. And so we had a lot of our colleagues would come from Italy, from Spain, from Europe to work within the UK healthcare system. And they have actually had to go back to their own countries because they are not entitled to stay here. We've lost a massive number of nursing staff because um, they can't be in the UK and they're not allowed to be here. So I think probably the biggest impact on um, 
workforce and of numbers of people in the workforce, it is Brexit and we don't like to mention it in England, but it is, I think, one of the major problems we, we are facing in our in our work provision. We And training people up is a great idea, but if you um, train to be a nurse, you're talking about three to four years of training. If you're trained to be a doctor, you're talking about five to six years of training. That's just your qualification. That's not the extra training you need beyond that. So you're talking about, even if you pump prime it now, people being an effective workforce in 10 years, which doesn't mean you shouldn't start planning for it, but you need to look at what that workforce looks like, allowing for the fact that a lot of families now have two people working who may both work three quarter time. And you need to allow for the fact that you're training a whole person up to provide um, uh, a service that's half or three quarter time. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and so I suppose the issue is that, um, you know, that workforce shortage going forward is going to take a long time to rectify. But besides Brexit and COVID and junior doctors working differently and more women in the system, meaning there's more part time and, and it's sort of flexi time used by mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and men. But, but men as well. It's not yes, just about not being just women, women doctors. Yes. It's about men in, in the medical profession. Their partners may be, uh, their partners will be working full time or part time as well. Yes. Um, in general dual practice, careers. yeah, traditionally it'd be uh, a GP would be in one place forever. But now we see a lot of us moving around because our partner gets a job somewhere else because they're not in medicine. So we move with our partner mm. to mm. another part of the country. Mm. So you then lose me from here because I've moved to Bristol, for example. So because that I wanted to go with my partner. So so we are seeing changes in the workforce because yeah. of that. Yeah. But I was going to add the other thing that seems to be uh, you know, almost a sort of short-term issue that's coming at speed is um, uh, potentially uh, primary care physicians or GPs um, are contracted to the NHS, unlike hospital doctors who are employed by the NHS. And I understand mm-hmm. that there's different forms of contracts and that um, GPs in the UK um, have this issue about their superannuation scheme Mm. um, and the way it's being taxed and that um, particularly the cohort that are now heading towards retirement are looking at facing large tax bills which they'll have a cash flow problem some of them potentially um, being forced into early retirement. Is that is that the case? In our profession as GPs, we've had to, traditionally had a partnership model and most people come up don't want to be partners. So we're changing the, the model of general practices, changing a um, partner owning a practice. Salary doctors, more like in the Australian system where you have one person who owns a practice, but you may have a stop in it. So we're moving more towards a model that's very similar to yours, but with remuneration being different. Um, so we've got sort of a, a mixture of changes to why people are leaving. I think that the combination of that and the final nail in the coffin has been this situation. We all have to pay as well we do, and it's good. It's a good pension scheme. Um, we've all paid into it from the day we qualified, but now the government have put something in process so that we have to pay tax on the um, the inflation of our superannuation pot. And if, if inflation, say, in the UK happened to be 10%, even if I didn't pay another penny into it, I would have to pay, or if I, you know, if I paid one pence into it, I'd have to pay 10% of any increase in that pot each year. And so that means that for some people, they've just decided they're having to pay such big tax bills on that, that you're working in order to pay a tax bill. And it's just been the final reason a lot of people are saying, do you know what, I'm just going to leave the profession um, and I'm just going to retire now because I've got a good life. and it's taking its toll on my health. Mm. Mm. So there's there's a lot of changes and a lot of pressures that mm. are going on. But despite that, I find it extraordinary 
how deified the NHS is in many ways and, and, and as, you know, the Olympics in London in 2012 yeah. and that big NHS hospital bed and people do feel very emotionally attached to the NHS and that's, you know, partly because it's sort of, you know, universal health care was, you know, ahead of its time when it was first initiated in 1948 and it's been, um, a, you know, you know, very much a socialised healthcare setting. Yeah. But I understand that it's coming under the financial sustainability and that there are some doors that have been opened now to privatising the NHS healthcare system uh, more over time. And certainly in Australia, I always say that we're a bit of a balance between the privatised system of the US and the more socialised system um, of, of the UK. And we have a delicate balance between universal healthcare for all and uh, private healthcare for innovation and for um, you know people who possibly can afford extra care. So the question in my mind is, you know, is the is the privatisation of the NHS and, and opening up to providers from offshore, such as in the US, a good thing or a bad thing? Um, I think that for most of us, we you know, evolved in, it came to being in 1948. So for most of us, we were born within it. Uh, we've grown up within it. And it's very noticeable people that have lived abroad uh, or have come from abroad who the pleasure of not having to constantly justify what they're paying out and feeling they're vomiting out money each time they see something. It's lovely to work in a system where money is not something that you have that you have to worry about. You're not looking at somebody. I know when I worked in Australia, you had to um, decide whether you might bulk bill somebody or not because you knew they didn't have the money to, to be able to afford to see you. Um, and it's lovely being in a system where I don't have to worry about that. I can see anybody um, with good faith refer them on for the treatments that they need. Um, so I think we have got a very, we've got the, the theory of the NHS is a very good system. The evolution of it is, is that I think that we've all been, it's been around for so long that people we've become spoilt by it, that we think we can just have everything that we want when we can't. It, there is a finite amount of money to go around. And I think we need to acknowledge that, but that doesn't mean that we need to run down the NHS. I think that the changes in the white paper that came in last year allowed any qualified provider, allowed, it, allowed people to come in from outside. Now, a good example is Virgin Healthcare, um, who no, Medicine in England is a not-for-profit organisation. Um, Virgin don't want to be in something that's not going to make them a profit. A local surgery was taken over by Virgin Healthcare and Virgin promised everything they were going to do there. But in fact, when it came down to it, they were very rigid in what they would provide because they needed to make a profit from it. Therefore, that the patients of that practice haven't, I think, had the, um, the healthcare needs met in quite the same way, even though technically it's an NHS practice. And Virgin now withdrawing from that practice because... Um, they have decided that there's no money to be made in healthcare, and yet the new white paper has allowed a backdoor in that we are starting to see some American providers being interested. And as we all know, the American healthcare provider system is not just for a small amount of profit, it's for massive profits. And I think that's very, very frightening that that is a way of suddenly our NHS, our money that should be going to everyone is going to be paying um, a foreign, foreign people to be able to make a profit and we should be ploughing it back into our healthcare system. So I see that as a big threat to the NHS. I think we are very proud of the NHS, but I think there's a lot that we need to be critical of at the moment. And we, we need to be honest about what our healthcare can provide for us. Um, and we need to look at it as being as comprehensive as possible, but we have to accept that there are some treatments 
that we just can't have because mm. of the costing of it. We were talking before yeah. um, about that sort of three tenets of yeah. free at source, fully comprehensive, meaning any yeah. test and available to all, and that you can only really have two out of the three, but yeah. the UK is free at source and available to all. But yeah. that means it has to be some, I suppose, some um, decisions yeah. made about you know what the system can afford. And one of the things that you know is, is very clear is that the cost of healthcare, particularly personalised medicine, some of the expensive monoclonal bodies some of the you know car t therapy which are very individualized therapies are incredibly expensive and you know what you know health minister is going to say uh, no to a group of patients who say look our lives will be extended or even cured based on these highly expensive yeah. um, products that are being produced so the wonders of miracle medicine are, are very exciting but then you know the question is how to make sure that you know they can be paid for by mm. by healthcare bill that's under under you know a, a huge amount of pressure uh, i know in the u.s sorry in australia that um, health is currently 4% of our GDP spending, but it's expected and anticipated just on population growth and ageing of the population mm. to be 8% by 2040. Mm. So we do need to think about how we're going to be able to afford these fantastic yeah. healthcare systems in the future. And also that our ageing population, living here in Devon, Sidmouth, which is nearby, is the population um, demographics of 30 years' time because it's a, it's a happily wealthy place but it has the most I think that and Budley Salterton have the highest number of people over the age of 100 in the whole country but that is our future and how do we provide care for people that are elderly frail um, with multiple comorbidities but actually are still functional parts of the, of society and that's a, that's a real challenge for us all um, and there are the social aspects of healthcare that come into that so it's a challenge for all of us and it's one which um, we have to try to invest in because actually what we're investing in is our future. We're not just investing, we're not just looking after somebody who's 100 now. If we get it right, we've invested in our future of how we are going to be cared for as elderly people. Mm, that's very wise words. Well, um, to finish my podcast, and thank you so much, Emma, for being uh, with me on this very interesting podcast. A final question, and I'll leave it with you to answer, is what do you think health will look like in 100 years from now? Um, I think we will probably all be chipped so that everything we do is constantly monitored. I think if we have health insurance or life insurance, um, if we haven't been able to prove by our chip that we've been out for our four mile walk, that we've eaten healthily, we didn't eat any chocolate. Um, so I think there'll be a lot more preventative medicine. I think we will be um, older and healthier, but I think we'll also be seeing problems of ageing, um, of uh, so I think that will be a, a challenge. I think stays in hospital, I think, will go down. I know, you know, we've talked about whether or not there will be hospitals. And I think we've seen, if you'd have asked me 20, 30 years ago, would people be in hospital for the, such a short space of time? So I think a lot more healthcare I will be provided in the community. I think that's probably the right place for it to be provided. But if we do that, is that the most cost-effective way to do it? If you've got, say, 10 people having babies and you've got to have 10 midwives to go out to fight 10 different places is it more efficient to have 10 midwives in a hospital so if one there's a problem with one everyone can help so I think we've got to it'd be interesting to see I think we'll have smaller hospitals a lot more care in the community I think as people population I think we'll have to be far more proactive in how we look after ourselves and preventative health fantastic love that's a great way to end thank you so much Emma it's been wonderful speaking to you yeah thank you <laughs> Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple a Week. Hopefully you'll learn as much as I do.